And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. My name is Chris Voorhees. Many of you know me. Um, I see some faces that I recognize out here. I actually grew up in this church. I was baptized. I went through the youth ministry here. And so this is quite a, quite a pleasure and quite an honor to be standing before you. Uh, but you came to hear from the Lord and not necessarily from me. So uh, that's, that's it about me. Um, let me pray before we get started here. God, you are good. God, we can't understand fully Good Friday. But God, you take imperfect things and you make them perfect by your cross, God. And so I ask that your spirit, the presence of your spirit, just would be known in this place today. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Mike Flavin, for those of you who know him, often describes Good Friday as a funeral service for Jesus. And I've always liked that. I felt like it was pretty appropriate Actually, on the way up, I I live down in Princeton, and on the drive up here, I actually got stuck behind a funeral procession, and um, and I and at first I was a little you know frustrated. I was looking at my watch, I got to get going here. Uh, But then I stopped and I thought a little bit, and I said, you know, how how appropriate is this? How appropriate is there to be a funeral service on Good Friday? And I think I even went as far to say, you know, if I had a funeral, my funeral on Good Friday, I think. That would be a good thing. Uh, I just feel like it was very, very appropriate. Um, But today we didn't come to talk about funeral services. We came to talk about the cross. The cross is the most iconic symbol in the Christian faith, right? We we wear it on our on our necks with necklaces. We we have it here in the front of the sanctuary. We see it over at OLP. It is just distinguishable. It is the, the iconic symbol in the Christian faith faith. For me, the cross, it serves as a reminder that my life is hidden in Jesus's. It's not, when when God looks at me, he doesn't see Chris, he sees Christ. And it's by Christ's righteousness that I am saved. So Good Friday for me is a day, it's a day to remember. We remember the awful, the wondrous, like we sang earlier, and the painful reality of the cross. But one thing you know that I think we don't talk a whole lot about is how Jesus died. I don't, I don't mean specifically the medical you know, expl- explanation of, of how he suffocated because he couldn't push up on the nails that were staked into his feet. I don't necessarily mean that. I mean more, how did Jesus prepare to die? 
how did he approach his death? So what I, what I want to do is I want to take, look at the timeline of Jesus' death and stop at three moments and take three snapshots so that we can see how Jesus was preparing to die. So we enter this story in the beginning of the Passion Week. Mark tells us the setting is Simon the leper's house. I just read it from Mark there, and and Jesus is reclining at table. And and what that basically means is is he was having a a meal with his friends, having a meal with his buddies, and, and then this really bizarre thing occurred. This woman just entered into the room, She had this box, this alabaster box, and and she opened it up and she poured this ointment onto Jesus' head. I don't know about you, but that usually doesn't happen at my household very often. Um, Sarah, my wife, usually doesn't pour anything on my head during during dinner, but this really bizarre thing happened, and and the disciples that were there were were pretty upset at this. They were just righteous and and indignant at what what happened because they, they thought they could give this money to the poor. And so they got really, really upset. But you know, as I read this story, I found it really easy to identify with the disciples. I think it, it reminds me of, of good seminarians. They, like myself, are learning daily about Jesus and his kingdom. They have witnessed Jesus' entire ministry up until this point. And in a couple weeks, They're going to walk across the stage at their graduation, receive a diploma from Jesus, their president, that's going to read, go and make disciples. But even at this point of following Jesus, they miss what Jesus is thinking and what he is doing. So they must have been shocked when Jesus opened his mouth to reprimand them. I could hear them saying things to Jesus like, Jesus, don't you worry we got this one handled. We've been, we've been learning from you. We know how you respond to this, so, so don't worry about it. We can respond to this just utter waste of money. But in the midst of this righteous outburst, with the woman having standing there, she's still there, she's standing there, having just poured out her year's worth of wages on Jesus' head, she's probably feeling vulnerable, alone, maybe even ashamed. Jesus looks at those disciples and he says, leave her alone. But Lord, I don't think you understand. We could have used that money. No, what she has done for me is beautiful, Jesus says. And again, as a disciple, I just, I would have been utterly shocked. But you see, what the disciples miss here, I think, is something that we miss every day of our lives. We forget that the king is the most important part of the kingdom. In their noble pursuit to do what is good, they forgot that without Jesus, these pursuits, they were just all in vain. Jesus is the one who should be praised. Jesus is and was worth a year's wages. I think there can be a tendency for us to work and to work and to work and get caught up in all of these activities we do and we can forget who really is the king. We all want to be good family members, good teammates, good parents, good students, good office mates, good investment bankers, good therapists, good teachers, you name it, good grandparents. We want to be good. But ultimately, our desires of being good are not more important than Christ himself. 
Too often we can serve God without loving God. We can work hard to provide for our families, but we can forget to love Jesus. We can go on the relief bus in downtown New York City, but we can forget to love Jesus. We can pray with our kids before bedtime, but we can forget to love Jesus. We can do all these things for Jesus, all noble, righteous, honorable things, but in the end, we can forget to love Jesus. These disciples, they thought that they were ready for ministry. They had tasted and they had seen Jesus at work for three years, but without Jesus' death and resurrection, no amount of service to the poor was going to be sufficient. He was reminding them that the mission he was on had not yet come to completion. They didn't recognize yet, despite his incessant predictions, that he must die. But this woman, who most likely was a prostitute, understood this truth about Jesus. She was preparing the king, the Messiah, for what was to come by anointing him with pure nard from an alabaster jar. I want to talk a little bit about this alabaster jar because I think this imagery is really, really powerful. For this, as we know from from the gospel, it's a really expensive perfume, and it was probably imported from the Himalayas in India. This woman is described in, in the Gospel of Luke, a very similar story. She's described as a woman of the city. This jar then most certainly was used for her promiscuity in the past, but she takes this symbol of sin in her life, and she literally pours it out onto Jesus' head. And what was once used for her eros love in the past, Christ has redeemed by his agape love. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think that you can pour those deepest, darkest, most shameful sins onto Jesus' head? And he can take those sins and he can use them for his glory? To me, that is powerful. Even in this anointing, he is redeeming and he is making things new. The uncalculated love that she showed Jesus is in stark contrast to the love that Judas shows for Jesus just following this story in the Gospel of Mark. While this woman communicates that Jesus is worth a year's wages, Judas, he holds up a bag of coins and says, yep, this is all that it will take. But if we are honest with ourselves, I think we have all at some point in our lives cast our votes with Judas. This manifests in our lives in very different ways. Some of us think that we are failures, that God made us and he just didn't do a great job. Some of us think that we need to impress others in order to be liked. Some of us really want other people to look at us and say, wow, you've been really successful in this life, haven't you? But regardless, I think we all try in our own different ways to work our way into God's graces. But Jesus looks at each one of you. He looks at me and he says the same thing that he says to that woman. And it's, you have done all you can. And so in the end, Jesus heads into the Passion Week knowing that he must die not only for those that express love to him daily, but for those like Judas. He goes into the Passion Week knowing that it is only by his death that we will ever be in right relationship with God. You have done 
all you can, beloved. Now let Jesus do the rest. So it is in this first snapshot that we see Christ preparing for death by taking what was once used for sin in the past and redeeming it and using it for God's glory. And as we continue on into the Passion Week, we stop and we take another picture, another snapshot of Jesus. And it's in this picture that we look at, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. Many of you are probably really familiar with this story. But every time I go back and read it, I am blown away by how human, how vulnerable Jesus is in this story. With the reality of death quickly approaching, Jesus does what was a custom for him. He goes and he prays. You know, in a room this large, I think it is pretty safe to assume that that many of us have had close encounters with death. Maybe even right now, you have a loved one that is on their deathbed. Maybe the doctors have only given you a couple months to live. Maybe you have experienced the excruciating pain of losing a child to miscarriage. Maybe you know what it is like to outlive your child. Death is real, and death can hurt. Death can be overwhelming for even the most faithful of Christians. Death, as we see here, is even overwhelming for Jesus. It's in the Gospel of Luke that we see Jesus Again, I said it earlier, in the most vulnerable state that I think is recorded in the Gospels. He knew, Jesus knew that he was about to die. He knew that there was this torture and this agony and this loneliness and this burden that he was about to go through. He knew all of that. So what does he do? He literally asked the Father, please, won't you take this cup from me? Please, God, is there any other way for this to happen? I don't think it is too far-fetched to assume that you have prayed maybe that exact prayer. God, why? Isn't there another way for this to happen? Again, you might be in that spot right now. You keep talking to God, and it just seems like nothing is happening you, you, you know, at least maybe not in the way that you want it to. And sometimes I think when we're in this place, the waiting almost gets more unbearable than the thing that we're actually praying about to begin with. But you see, Jesus doesn't stop with that sentence. He continues and he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus expresses his deep anguish, but then he submits to the Father's will. I think this is the part where me and maybe you, we get maybe a little frustrated with Jesus. Couldn't you just stop after you said, take this cup from me? Wouldn't that have just been great? (laughs) But no, Jesus continues on into the death march saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This phrase uttered by Jesus, knowing the pains and the burdens that he was about to bear, I think is probably the hardest phrase, at least for me, to really wrap my head around. For me to utter this phrase with Jesus, not my will but yours be done, might be really the last thing that I really want to do. At times, I probably am not alone here, I think that I am captain of my own ship. Who knows me better than me, right? (laughs) 
But what we learn about Jesus in his death and during the Passion Week is so opposite to this me-centered myth that I think we all buy into. Even in Jesus approaching death, he is telling the Father his desires, but he is ultimately wanting the Father to be glorified in all. This model of honesty and vulnerability, I think, is something that we should hold on to in our prayers as well. It's not a cop-out. It's not shortchanging God to tell him exactly what you're feeling and going through and desire, and then to follow that up, follow that up with, not my will, but yours be done. This, I believe, is worship. This is standing in the throne room and shouting at God, shaking your finger at God, crying out to God, but then bending on, worship knee, on worshiping knees. For some of us, we can't imagine yelling at God. Whoa, we can't do that. He's God. For, other of us, for others of us, I think that exchange might be all too normal. But what we see Jesus doing here is a little bit of both. He's expressing this longing for God to be worshipped, to be glorified. He's longing for God to take his cup, but then afterwards he is submitting in worship to the Father. So it is in this snapshot that we see Jesus modeling what it is like to be human, to have these really heavy, intense emotions, but yet giving them to God and worshipping on bended knee. Again, this is prayer. This is worship. So finally, we arrive at our destination and we take our last snapshot of Jesus. And it is in this picture that we see Jesus right after his death. So at this point, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been denied by Peter, the future rock of the church. He's been tried and accused by the very ones who he actually came to save. He's been traded for a murderer, he's been mocked, he's been beaten, he's been spit on, he's been clubbed. A crown of thorns has just been like stuffed down on his head. He's been forced to carry the cross, the very thing that, that's going to kill him. And if all that's not enough, he's been crucified. How could any of, all, any of that, any of the stuff that I just mentioned, how could any of that be redeemed? How could God take any of that and say, yep, this was my plan? How could God weave grace into a story that included all of that stuff as part of it? My guess is that many of you probably have parts of your story that are like what I just described. I don't mean to necessarily compare exactly what Jesus went through with what you are going through, but, but, excuse me, but pieces of it are parts of your story too. I think we have all been mocked at some level in our lives. We read that Jesus, they blindfolded him and they effectively like, told him to close his eyes and guess how many fingers they were holding up. I mean, just laughing along the way. Maybe you have even be, been traded for a murderer. Maybe at work, you know, you took a stand for a controversial issue and, and they said, nope, sorry, we don't need you anymore. And then in walks someone who's willing to go along with what the company was saying. Maybe some of you have been betrayed by someone that you love. You might even feel like you've been spit on. Maybe some of you have actually been spit on. These are all parts of our stories that I truly believe 
I, we, we just wish they weren't. We might have even asked God, why, that they, why do these things have to be there? Why can't you just take these things away? But you know, it would be dishonest for me from the pulpit to give some kind of platitude to tell you exactly why your best friend betrayed you or why your child doesn't love Jesus. It would be dishonest for me to do that. But if I am going to have to hang my hat on anything in this mystery, it is this. Jesus is with you in those dark moments of your story. Jesus, the great high priest, is with you. For as it says in Hebrews, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And what not a more appropriate and powerful place to see this done, to see this happen than in the death of Jesus. It says then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And following this, Luke writes, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Or as Matthew puts it, Surely this was the Son of God. And so after observing all that had gone on, this centurion, this Roman officer, saw who Jesus truly was. His response to Jesus' death is, is confession. It's this proclamation, and again, it's worship. Isn't that how we want people to see our life when we, in our life and in our death? In our actions, don't we want people to see Jesus? By God's grace, we can be so empty, emptied of ourselves and so filled with Jesus that when people stop and they look at us, they say, wow, Jesus truly is real. This is what captures this last snapshot. Jesus' death is this ultimate step towards our suffering, towards our sin. Jesus, it shows that there is no place that Jesus is unwilling to go to win our hearts for his glory. And it is in this opportunity that we, like the centurion, can respond to Jesus' death in worship to give our lives to this king. The most intimate moment that I had ever had with my grandfather was on his deathbed. Some of you actually might remember my grandfather, Jack. He was a man that was filled with life. He was really stubborn. He always had a joke or two. He would never let you uh, pay. He would take you out to lunch, but he would never let you pay. Uh, I, I really loved my grandfather dearly, um, and I do miss him. And I remember going up to his bedroom. He lived over in the, the condos by the Murray Hill train station. I remember going up and sitting on his bed, and I don't remember exactly what I said to him. You know, something along the lines of, you know, I, just thank you, Grandpa. I, I love you. I miss you, and I'm just... I'm just so glad you've been a part of my life. And, and after I said this, you know, probably crying along the way, I remember looking into his eyes, these yellow eyes that were just longing to be with Jesus. Uh, and, he, and he stopped me and he said, he said, Christopher, he said, I want you to remember one thing. He said, when you think of me, I want you to remember Jesus. 
and he gave me, he gave me his wedding ring that, that obviously reminds me of my beautiful wife, but it also reminds me to remember Jesus. You know, what a gift my grandfather gave to me that day. What a gift Jesus has given to us as he prepared to walk into death, as he died, as he took all of the iniquities on to his shoulders. What a gift he has given us. And so in death and in life, may we know that redemption has been won. May we know that we can pour out our sins, our deepest, darkest sins, onto Jesus. He can take those and redeem them and make them new and use them for God's glory. May we know how we ought to pray in these deep, dark moments when maybe the last thing we want to do is go and talk to God about them. And may we respond to his death in worship, knowing who Jesus is and what he has done and the life that we now can have because of his death. Would you pray with me? God, a lot of this just... This Good Friday, a lot of it just doesn't make sense to us. God, we don't know why you had to do it, God, but we are so thankful. God, we worship you on bended knee. God, we, at times we don't even know how to express these things to you, Lord, but, but I know, God, that your spirit groans for us. And so, God, we just, we want to submit to you in worship. We want to love you more and more each and every day. And God, together as a congregation, we say the Father, we say the prayer that our Father taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The kingdom and the power and the glory forever.